This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. So Taylor and I have been talking for a little while about what this show and the next show or so might be, and I think I understand, but I'm going to let Taylor Taylor explain (laughs) it before we really get going. It's really hard to give this a specific title. Ultimately, we're going to talk about the psychology of story and get to the part where storytellers are basically illusionists. But it is a, um, it's a long <laughs> and it is definitely more than what we can do in one show. But it's not easy to break down and split up and say, oh, here, we're going to stop here, whatever. So what we're going to do here is a little bit different in that we are going to just record this. And we're going to have to break it up into multiple shows. But it means that the ones that come after are not going to have this easy flow into it intro. It's going to be like, and now we go back to our recording type thing. But (laughs) it is a... It is something that's been bouncing around in my brain for a while. And then there was something that triggered me to go, okay, now I'm ready to start talking about this. And I've spent the last three days trying to take this concept, this understanding I have and and distill it down into its separate parts in a logical and coherent order. And I'm not sure I've exactly succeeded at at that, but this is going to be an attempt at it. And to do this, I had to write tons of notes and there's more explanation coming in the notes and I don't want to get ahead of myself there. So now, I'm if, if I, if I understand it. correctly, all of this came from your reaction to a tweet. Yes, but that's part of what I'm going to talk about. Okay. So right. it's all there. Like I, to, in order to get it coherent, I had to like line it up step by step and set myself up for the launch. So I don't want to like, interrupt myself and then have to be like, oh yeah, but I already said that. I'm just like, okay, so somehow, somehow a, a tweet of roughly 142 characters is turning into an hour or so worth of content. More, <laughs> more, I think. Well, I don't know right now, just the words of notes that I have is like 5,000 words, but I didn't even like make notes for everything. There's a whole bunch of other stuff I want to talk about that's related, but I can just, that I know well enough, I can just riff off of it. What's in my document is the stuff that I actually had to spell out so that I didn't lose track of it and I could keep it coherent. And you'll see what I mean. (laughs) And with that, (laughs) here, ladies and gentlemen, is Taylor Stevens. (laughs) Okay, so here we go. So I want to talk about a funny book-related tweet that's been making the rounds. And this thing, it it had to have gone viral because it has crossed both my Facebook and my Twitter timelines so often that I've lost count of how many times. And I'm not even that like, quote unquote, that online, as they say. 
if I've seen it this much, God only knows how far and wide it's gone. And I, I think it's highly likely that quite a few of our listeners have seen it too. And so the tweet came from international best-selling author Ruth Ware, and it reads thusly. I just read an Amazon review, in parentheses, not for one of my books, that said, quote, it feels like the author was just making it up as they went along, end quote. And I can't stop laughing. Like, dude, <laughs> I hate to tell you this. So the first time I saw that tweet was when a friend sent it as a screenshot, like in a message. And at the time, I did what I assumed just about everyone else who's seen it has done. So I laughed. But then, because my brain is ridiculously literal, which, if you're wondering, is just an awful and embarrassing place to live. It's awful. But it's what I was born with, and it's all I know. But because my brain is ridiculously literal, I went, wait a minute. And then, because I can't help myself, I switched right into full literal mode and actually wrote back with, well, the hilarious thing is, I know exactly what that person is saying, and they're right. Because <laughs> whether that reviewer being quoted in that tweet realized it or not, they were actually highlighting a paradox that's inherent to all good stories, but especially fiction. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about that paradox of story. And so that's why this is going to be different than a lot of our episodes. So not only are we recording it differently, but this is more of an essay, I guess you could say. This is me attempting to explain concepts that I understand as a whole, but that I'm struggling to break down and I'm struggling to articulate from a ground up way that other people could clearly and cleanly follow along. So if it sounds like I'm reading a lot of this, it's because I am, because there is no way I could possibly riff this off the top of my head. But before we go there, I have to do my typical disclaimers. I have to make something really clear. So oh, I'm, about, <laughs> I'm about to use and break down someone else's tweet, right? And when you look at what online discourse has become these days, there's just so much uncharitable reading or often deliberate misreading of others' work as a way to attack and tear down. And mocking and belittling in reviews and comments for the reviewer's own status and for their audience, that's become a whole thing. And so given that that's the environment that we're in right now, it'd be really easy to think that that's what's going on here too, that I'm taking this tweet and I'm like tearing it apart and I'm not. Nothing that's about to follow is intended to pick apart that tweet or to belittle or wet blanket the humor. Um, imply that the author, less enlightened, for not saying what I'm saying, there is no, well, actually going on here. That tweet was funny, full stop. But it just also happens to be a perfect launch pad to work through some of this stuff that's been tumbling around in my brain. And so I'm using it as a starting place and I'm pivoting in a different direction. That's all that this is. And also want to say that if you're new to storytelling, and especially if you're new to this show, this discussion might seem a bit, I don't know, much, maybe a bit overwhelming. And if that's the case, please don't feel frustrated. 
Please don't feel frustrated if you feel yourself lost and trying to figure out how to apply any of this to a real world context. This is nerd stuff. This is under the hood story theory type stuff that most people, even a lot of professional writers, don't even stop to think about. You do not need to understand this in order to be a great or even a good storyteller. This is extra. So now that we're clear on all of that, here is that tweet again. I just read an Amazon review, parentheses, not for one of my books, that said, it feels like the author was just making it up as they went along. And I can't stop laughing. Like, dude, I hate to tell you this. And it's funny because fiction obviously is entirely made up. But here's the paradox. For a story to feel real and organic and alive, it must first be manipulated and molded to the point that it no longer is. And what that reviewer had just done was call out the author of whatever they were reading, that author's failure to adhere to the second part of that paragraph. So the second part of that paradox. So if you heard this, what I just read, and you went, oh yeah, I totally get it. Congratulations, because you are way better at this than me. I have gone back and I have reread that like five dozen times. And every time I'm still like, what? This is gibberish. And when I say I went back and reread that, I'm not talking about the tweet. I'm talking about the paradox. And I'm talking about my point of like that reviewer has just called out that author's failure to adhere to the second part of the paradox. Gibberish. I am certain that there's a better way to articulate the paradox, but I haven't figured that out yet. So in the meantime, please allow me to explain it in a way that may be easier to conceptualize. And to do this, I need to, to lay a foundation and build up. And for that, I need to backtrack a bit to look at what story is, why stories exist, and to accomplish that in a way that works specifically for this context, I'm going to crib bits and pieces from a rough draft of a thing that I started on a tangentially related topic and I never finished. So it's not published anywhere. You've never seen it before, but I'm cribbing myself and it may show up somewhere else in the future. Who knows? So this is going to really seem unrelated at first, but just Stay with me. I promise it's all going to come together. So here's, I'm cribbing from previous notes from something else. Our brains exist in complete touchless, soundless, smellless, tasteless darkness. Total sensory deprivation chambers, if you will. Everything our brains know about what exists outside those dark, silent, senseless chambers comes by way of electrical signals that the brain then converts into sight, sound, touch, taste, and smell, and which we perceive as reality. If you can imagine yourself free floating inside a sensory deprivation sphere, and if you can imagine the inner surface of that sphere as a skin upon which all those signals are projected into a virtual reality that's so tactile and authentic that you can feel the wind kiss your hair and breathe in a change of temperatures, then you've just imagined the world that exists between you and your brain. Your brain does this job of creating reality out of electrical signals so well that you, you the person, the shell, whatever, you are not even aware that your brain is itself blind, deaf, mute, and incapable of feeling any like tactile sensations. All of the input that your brain receives is on its own completely neutral. Just massive amounts of data being converted and projected onto this inner skin of the sphere without meaning 
in the same way that numbers in a database are on their own neutral and without meaning until we give them structure and identity and say what they stand for. But as a species, we are inherently incapable of existing in a state of neutrality or as mere observers or recorders of fact. It's not enough that we're cognizant of the sun rising and setting or rain falling or not falling or the knowledge that death ultimately finds us all. We are driven to pursue meaning, to put meaning to these things. And this drive to find meaning is so inherent to our nature that if meaning for a thing doesn't already exist, we'll just create one. And it's through meaning that we force order onto the world around us. And to us, meaning, even when it's of our own creation, and often especially when it's of our own creation, is as much a part of our reality as any other piece of data that's filtering in and reaching our brains. And the mechanism through which we create this meaning is story. It is the stories that our brains form about the sensory data we're receiving that converts this massive amount of neutral input into something that we understand as a lived experience. So every signal your brain receives, the majority of which you're not even consciously aware of, it becomes part of an inner story, an inner interpretation of meaning. And each brain is unique in how it converts those input signals into stories and your stories, the way your brain processes data and gives it meaning to understand the world around you, that's part of what makes you distinctly you. And because we're each on the inside looking out, we're predisposed to view our own stories as the center around which all the other stories revolve. And this is why two people can experience the exact same events at the exact same time, see, hear, smell, feel, taste, all the exact same sensory inputs and come away from that experience with two completely different responses and even contradictory memories of the same event, story. It's the stories we tell ourselves that put meaning to all of this data. Moving on from that, those rough notes from way back when to internalize that story is possible to separate from the other. Once we're able to understand that stories are the mechanism through which we make sense of the world around us, we also begin to understand that every person carries within them an unspoken, unconscious expectation of what story is and what it should do and what it should deliver. And if a story doesn't meet that expectation, we begin to withdraw from it, rejecting it as an an artificial imposition on our reality. And this, again, highlights that paradox, which is for a story to feel real and organic that it no longer is. It doesn't matter what form the story takes. It doesn't matter if the story is truth or fiction. It doesn't matter if we're talking about heady, weedy, philosophical discussions disguised as entertainment or the cheapest, low-stakes brain candy. This expectation exists always. And the expectation is meaning. And in this context, meaning isn't the same as meaningful. We're not talking about about morals, moralizing, or greater truth a la Aesop's fables. When we speak of meaning, we're speaking of intent, of purposeful direction, of coherence and shape and form. And in this context, meaning answers the questions, what is this about? Why does this matter? What is the point? So when we revisit the reviewer complaint, 
in that tweet, from this perspective, we kind of start to see what they're getting at. It doesn't feel like the, it, it feel sorry, it feels like the author was just making it up as they went along. That is another way of saying this doesn't feel coherent and intentionally shaped. And again, we return to paradox. For a story to feel real and organic and alive, it must first be manipulated and molded to the point that it no longer is. And in more expanded terms, what this paradox is saying is that for a story to feel real, for it to connect to the human experience without feeling like a bunch of randomness that's been manhandled and stuffed into sausage casing, to not feel like something artificial that's being made up on the fly, the story must be deliberately and intentionally manipulated and molded to the point that it no longer accurately reflects what is real. How so? Real life is messy and chaotic. Real life is random. Real life is however many years you get of basically making it up as you go along. Real life rarely gives us easy answers or closure or happy endings. In real life, pain, loss, suffering, and trauma aren't necessarily followed by answers, retribution, or redemption. In real life, bad things happen to very good people, and then those people die. The end. In real life, people who attempt to combat corruption and stand up against evil often end up in prison or dead or lose everything. In real life, brilliance is often treated as insanity, and survivors often end up broken and addicted. Sometimes they commit suicide. In real life, good doesn't always win. The powerless rarely triumph. And the story doesn't end at a high point. Life just goes on. And there's a lot of good stuff in life too, but stories aren't built out of happiness and contentment. So we're just not talking about that aspect. Stories, the internal ones we tell ourselves and the external ones we engage with for education and entertainment are a human attempt to force order onto all that chaos and to bring forth beauty from pain and make the senseless mean something to make all of this randomness matter. We are driven to make it matter in real life. And stories, the ones we tell ourselves, the ones we are drawn to, are how we do that. Stories, fiction, nonfiction alike, they draw from real life, but they are not real life. Stories are an artifice, a carefully curated selection of moments joined together into something new that is within itself complete and whole. Stories are not random. They are deliberate and intentional, formed and shaped by an invisible guiding hand that is focused on creating something specific. So in the book, Writing Fiction by the Gotham's Writers Workshop, there's a section written by David Harris at Edenbach that gets close to saying the same thing through the lens of plot. And I'm going to quote some excerpts that I've kind of cobbled together from that. He says, Life may be interesting. Life is often moving and eventful, but rarely does life actually contain plot. Now, I suppose you might say plot is like real life if, as Elmore Leonard advises, you leave out all the boring parts. But that brings us back to my premise that plot is not exactly like real life. When people ask what it's, what's it about in regards to their own existence, they're not sure they should even expect an answer. Yet they also, on some level, ask that question every time they approach a short story or novel. And this time, there had better be an answer. At the heart of most great fiction is the excitement created when we really feel that the work is after something specific, when it has a plot. 
Plot makes fiction coherent by drawing together everything around a single organizing force. That's right, one organizing force. Works of fiction are not and cannot be about a million things. They're usually about just one thing, and that thing draws everything together. Now, if you replace the word fiction with the word story, every bit of what Davis Harris Edenbach wrote still applies. And we'll get that back to that more in a bit. Another way to approach this concept is by using a term that might be more familiar from creating writing courses, and that word is episodic. So depending on the context, episodic can mean different things. For example, episodic storytelling is a legitimate and oft-used story structure in which a much larger, long-running story is broken down into smaller parts, and each of these parts are joined together by a common unifying theme or storyline. With episodic storytelling, each episode becomes its own mini-story, with its own beginning, middle, and end, as well as its own plot. And if you've ever watched network TV shows, then you have a pretty good sense of what this form of episodic storytelling looks like. The type of episodic storytelling we're going to discuss here are stories in which things that happen are not connected to a unifying theme or storyline. Here's an example of what this type of story might be like. And this is rough. I just made it up to articulate this idea. So here's the story, right? Circumstances have forced a mother and daughter to move from Dallas to San Diego. And they decide to make a road trip out of the move and use it as a bonding experience. Their first stop out of Dallas is in Midland, Odessa, where they decide to make a detour to the Permian Basin Petroleum Museum. And while they're at the museum, they accidentally stumble into an unrelated to them conflict and become witness to a crime. This put their lives in danger, a whole lot of excitement and drama unfolds, and they attempt to extricate themselves. And finally, they're on their way again. They reach El Paso. In El Paso, they stop again, and while they're getting food, a man has a heart attack. They call 911 and stay with him till he gets to the hospital, and at the hospital, they run into someone that the mother knew in high school. And this leads to an invitation to visit this friend's house where an old argument erupts and the mother is forced to work through some things from her past that have been eating at her for years. And they're on their way again. In Tucson, something else happens that throws them into danger and they have to run. They do detour up to Phoenix, more stuff happens. They move on again to Yuma, more stuff happens. And finally, shell-shocked, wind-blown sunburn, they retreat San Diego and the safety of their new home and the knowledge that this will be the most interesting summer they've ever had to the end. So on the surface, that looks like a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and end. It has characters and conflict and plot. But what we've really been handed is a disconnected series of random events that are only loosely linked by the fact that they all happen to the same people within the same arbitrary artificial time frame. So no matter how solid the wordcraft, no matter how interesting or entertaining each individual adventure might be within that story, it's going to fail to deliver because there's no overarching sense of order, no unifying thread or theme, no clear point or direction, no meaning. And so the basically a story like that fails to deliver on the second half of the story paradox, which is that has to be manipulated and molded until it no longer reflects real life. Here's how that same story might look if it did deliver on that second half of the paradox. A man dies. His wife and his daughter start receiving threats from a drug trafficking overlord demanding that they turn over hundreds of millions of dollars. Their now dead husband father had been moving for the, for the drug traffickers. They knew nothing about this. The women don't. They don't have that kind of money, but the kingdom doesn't believe them. And either way, he doesn't care. If they don't deliver, they'll both be tortured and prostituted and the kingpin will get whatever money he can from their bodies. The women are desperate. Law enforcement can't help them. The father had a close friend in San Diego. The mother calls this woman, hoping she can shed light on what is happening. The woman knows what's going on. She tells the mother they have no choice but to run. And if they can get to her, she can protect them. They don't have the money to fly, so they choose to drive. In Midland, Odessa, they stop for gas. That's when they realized they were followed out of Dallas. 
They realize this because someone tries to kidnap them. They are gagged, dumped into a truck, a trunk, and through wits and working together, they manage to get free and escape. And there's a huge to do, but they manage to get back to their car. They also realize that the car is how these jerks have been tracking them. So when they reach El Paso, they ditch the car and opt to take a bus. If they can get as far as Yuma, the friend can come retrieve them. When the bus stops in Tucson, there are bad guys waiting for them. A whole new round of escape and adventure takes place. Women end up being saved by a trucker headed to Yuma. They can't in good consciousness lie to him, so they tell him what's happening and he agrees to help them. Unbeknownst to the women, this man has a former life as a badass, and he just happens to have encountered this particular flavor of bad guy in his past life. Sure, he wants to help the woman, but he's got his own personal things with these bad guys going on as well, so they head off. On the way to Yuma, the drug traffickers, traffickers come after them again. There's a massive chase, fight thing. Eventually, the trucker and mother and daughter overcome. They're banged up. They get to Yuma. The friend is there waiting to pick them up. Through, through this part of the ordeal, the mother and the trucker have developed a thing, and there's this sort of sweet sorrow in the separation and also hints of possibly reconnecting at a later date. The friend heads out to San Diego with the mother and daughter in the back seat, and there's relief that something good might come from all of this, the end, but also probably a whole series built off of what happens in this story. The difference between this version and the first is that everything that happens in the second is connected. The, the places they go, the things that happen, it's all connected and the story has purpose. And the, even the things that appear to be random, they're not really random. There's a point, there's meaning. And so you might say, sure, that's all fine and good. But what if all I want to do is write a sweet mother and daughter road trip story that doesn't involve mobsters or blood and guts or all the high stakes thriller elements? What then? Okay, fine. A man dies. His wife and daughter have a very strained relationship. They are barely on speaking terms. As the mother begins to sort through the aftermath of the financial records and all the chaos and crap that death evokes, she realizes that they've been left with nothing. Her family's in California. Her parents are aging. They need care. They've offered to give her their home if she's willing to come move in with them and be a live-in caretaker. And to sweeten this deal, they also offer to pay for the daughter's final year of college. Mother and daughter both hate this idea. But circumstances are forcing them to stick with each other. So deep inside, they both want to repair this relationship, but they don't know how because there's so much hurt and anger that neither one of them is willing to be the one to make the first step. The only things they can agree on are that they have no choice to make this trip together, but to make this trip together. And since they're stuck with each other, they might as well use the opportunity to seek out unique activities along the way, sightseeing, tourist things, whatever. And then, you know, maybe they'll have some mother-daughter bonding, whatever. And there are big things, of course, like detouring to the Grand Canyon to see it while they have the chance. But most of the activities that they choose are smaller and pettier. The mother is terrified of snakes. And at one of these stops, the daughter chooses to visit a herpetarium. At the next stop, the mother retaliates by choosing something she knows the daughter would hate. And at each turn, the drama and hilarity and conflict ensues. But as the trip wears on, and as they each begin to see sides of each other they've never seen before, they begin to understand each other. And by the time they reach their destination, they've grown closer and maybe even become sort of quasi friends. The end. Okay. So what differentiates this last example from the first, again, is that everything that's happening within the story is directly connected to a unifying thread. And this unifying thread is what provides a sense of completeness and order and gives the whole thing intent and purpose and meaning. So again, the paradox. For a story to feel real and organic and alive, it must first be manipulated and molded to the point that it no longer is. We approached the same concept from a different angle not too long ago 
with the metaphor of story ideas being links on a chain. We talked about how when you're crafting a story, everything has to connect back and how if you start a new, if you start new chain links that branch off from the main without leading anywhere, you'll end up with an unfocused story that doesn't know what it is. Story is story. And regardless of what form it takes, this concept holds true. Compelling and powerful stories are compelling and powerful, not because they directly mimic real life, but because they select and curate from real life to create something more. And this is just as true of nonfiction as is of fiction, and just as important to biographies and memoirs as it is to myths and legends. It's not quite as obvious in nonfiction due to its nearness to real life. But if you look, you'll see that memoirs aren't merely a recounting of all the events that have filled an interesting or remarkable life. What you're reading is a curated, crafted version that removes the boring stuff and the side stuff and seeks to find a unifying thread between what's left. A well-written memoir resembles real life, but it is not real life. It's something more. The art of storytelling involves, it requires deliberate intention and thought. And when that deliberation isn't thorough, when the material isn't manipulated and molded to the point where it steps beyond real life and becomes whole in itself, the audience is going to feel like you're just making it up as you went along. And this is another way of saying that to the outside observer, the story doesn't feel coherent, doesn't feel purposeful, it doesn't know what it is or where it's going. It doesn't provide order and meaning. <laughs>